I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, if you can hear the air conditioning, I'm afraid that's just what it is, because otherwise we'd be boiling hot. Um, but uh, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the book and Shiromi and um, what's happened. So we're a small press. There's only two point four of us. Um, the point four works a little bit. Uh, the other two work some. Uh, and um, I'm really happy that Shromi's here with uh, Owen and Olivia to kind of celebrate the book and talk about the uh, work of Minette Silva and um, just generally her life and the fiction that Shromi's created around that. Um, essentially, like, Gary, who's sitting here, is also part of Impact Press. Um, we, we had nothing to do with this book, really. Uh, Sanya Semakula, who, who's not here tonight, she picked it out of a pile found it, polished it, and then gave it to us. Um, and we said, yes, please. Um, and uh, I'm here to take all the glory from Sanya. Uh, but uh, were she here, she'd be doing the introduction. Um, so I think uh, Shromi's novel is a, a kind of a brilliant portrayal of a forgotten woman from history, a architect, a brilliant mind, um, and it needs to be celebrated uh, we'll talk more about Manette de Silva as it goes, but a tiny little bit of background before everyone launches in. She was an architect uh, who qualified from AA just down the road. Um, first Asian woman to be elected to REBA, uh, Royal Institute of British Architects. Uh, left, set up her own practice in Sri Lanka um, and kind of made her own way that way. Faced many obstacles, as you might imagine. There's a Asian woman architect in the 50s and 60s, um, of which Shromi chronicles uh, with a lyricism and uh, an elegance uh, that I don't think many other writers would have been able to achieve. Uh, she has written a book that celebrates someone but also shows their true character and doesn't shy away from nuance, um, but also explores the relationships Manette um, Silva had with various rather powerful men, uh, mostly European uh, men, and that kind of interesting tension between sort of the great man figure of architecture and art against uh, Manette de Silva's kind of more, uh, I guess, unconventional uh, occupation of the space in which those uh, great men occupied uh, is, is probably the crux of the book and really worth exploring and also why we published it in the first place to kind of re-establish Minette de Silva and her story into a kind of modern space. Um, it is a book of fiction, however, uh, so there are liberties and uh, it's not biographical, um, which I'm sure will be discussed on the panel. Um, and of course, it features quite heavily uh, a guy called Le Corbusier, <laughs> you might have heard of. I don't, don't know much about him. Um, anyway, so uh, just to introduce the panel, uh, Owen Hatterley on uh, your far right, um, but is definitely far left, um, <laughs> is the author of Militant Modernism and uh, most recently The Adventures of Owen Hatterley, 
in the post-Soviet space. Uh, Shromi's in the middle. Um, and uh, Olivia Sujic, who is the author of uh, Sympathy and uh, an essay book called Exposure. Um, so I guess this is the time to make a round of applause and introduce... <laughs> Thanks, Kurt. That was at least half of my first question. Um, so um, we're going to ask, um, start off with some uh, just talking about the, what the, the sort of basic what the book is about and so forth. Then go on to some of the, the things it sort of it sort of brings up, and then we're going to read some of the not entirely factual letters that that appear in the book. Um, so the first obvious question. I, I was going to be, who was Minette de Silva and why do we have to ask? Mm-hmm. But now I've been told who she was. So um, why do we have to ask? <laughs> why do we have to ask who she is? Um, well, I mean, I think there are a few things I do need to say about her that were not actually covered in Kit's introduction. So, you know, Minette, um, she studied at the AA uh, uh, just after the Second World War. Um, and during her time in Europe, she came to know some very illustrious figures, among them Henri Cartier-Bresson, um, the Gilgoods, and, of course, Le Corbusier. And then she um, was called back to Sri Lanka. And, and, you know, her relationship with Le Corbusier, you know, um, was one that was very much based on a long correspondence, and it was a friendship, um, which I imagine to have been something a bit more than that. But when she returned to Sri Lanka, she really kind of synthesized these ideas about modern architecture and saw that she needed to do something that was more relevant to... Sri Lanka or Ceylon as it was known then and so she um, she really was a pioneer she was the first modernist architecture of Sri Lanka uh, architect rather of Sri Lanka and um, apart from that she also kind of came up with this idea of modern regionalism so she was really trying to bridge the um, distance between modernism and the kind of regional architecture that you find um, in Sri Lanka. And that, that really wasn't a thing back then, but it really became a thing, which maybe you could talk a little bit more sure. about. Um, but I think you know, that's one of the reasons why we do need to know about her, because she had this really pioneering vision about architecture, um, which has since really been, I'd say, buried and forgotten and um, eclipsed by the more famous architect of Sri Lanka, um, whose name I'm not even going to mention. <laughs> so this is not an event about him. So, um, yeah. so um, and why this particular sort of book about her? And so far as this is, you know, it's a sort of proper sort of complex historical novel. It's, you know, it's not sort of like here is a recounting of her heroic life. You can take it in all kinds of peculiar directions. And sort of what we are, what were your sort of reasons for that? And how, how free did you feel that you could be with the records. Gosh. So my reasons for it being more than just the relationship between Le Corbusier and Minette are simply because they lived during a very particular time. This is, you know, the post-colonial period. Um, Ceylon had just become independent. And I felt like they just coincidentally happened to be practicing at a time when um, these countries were engaged in, you know, building their new nations. And, and there's a lot to be, to be kind of dissected in that. So um, I always set out to write about that period. Um, and then you asked me, I've forgotten what the, what the second part well, of your question was. What about the kind of fact and fiction uh, yes, aspect? The fact and, and so far as so much of the book hinges on... On the letters exchanged. Yes, exactly. I mean, obviously, letters were exchanged between Minette Silver and Le Corbusier. Yeah, they were. But they weren't necessarily these letters. No, they really weren't. <laughs> um, they really weren't. They're very much. Um, they're, they're very much a fiction. Um, yeah, I, I kind of like blanked that question, right? Because I've been. I've been given, <laughs> people ask me that question a lot, and I would. You know, I had to. I used 
the, the I used fat as my basis. Um, I did actually go to the Fondation Le Corbusier to um, read um, Minette's letters because those are really the only um, letters that I really had access to. I had some access to his as well because she created this autobiography, which is like a scrapbook, and it has a few um, examples of his letters, carefully curated. So, you know, you really have to read between the lines there. Um, how free did I feel? Well, because it was a work of fiction, I, I assumed the freedom that a creative writer should always have. Uh, but I also felt like, you know, I needed to maintain a certain credibility around these characters, uh, particularly Le Corbusier and Minette. And therefore, um, I, I, I kind of rooted it in, in particular milestones in their lives and in, and in their work. Um, but other than that, you know, I, because it's a novel, you know, you do have to kind of, you need to, to have some freedom so that you actually create the kind of dynamics in a, in a, in a novel um, to create, you know, that story arc. Mm. And so I took that freedom. But, there's, but so there's, there's, there's people in there who sort of, you know, the names obviously aren't changed, such as... Um, Marsha. You know, yeah, exactly. Marcia, and, and obviously mainly uh, Minette de Silva and Le yeah. But also there are people where sort of knowing a little bit about the history, I was able to kind of go, oh, I know that. Yeah. I know who that is. That's Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew, mm-hmm. um, but not named as such. No. Um, and then there's obviously the architect who we're not naming. No. Um, <laughs> shall not be named. <laughs> I think is, you know, sort of, by now I think it's quite widely accepted, took some of her ideas and yes. was much more successful with them. Yes. Yes. <sighs> he did. And, I mean, I do explore a bit of that in the novel, actually, um, and actually, in reality, he did really respect her work. And um, I believe he spent some time in one of her houses, and that was one of his favorite houses in Colombo. Um, so I can't completely uh, villainize him, but it is true, and it's actually not his fault. Mm. You know, he... he he borrowed those ideas via a certain someone who worked for her and then mm. defected. That the Dane. Yes, the Dane, the Dane defected. <laughs> um, that's Ulrich Plesner, actually. But it, um, oh, yeah. it, I mean, it, just, it sounds a little bit to me like that links into your first question about why do we need to know who, mm. why don't we already know? Oh. And it may not be he who shall not be named's fault. It's the reception <laughs> where I think there's this tendency definitely with modernist architecture and Denise Scott Brown talks about this tendency to want to appoint one lone male genius figure and obviously the way that architecture works like most art forms is much more collaborative than that but it's a lot easier for the people who write the you know pieces of criticism Mm -hmm. etc to want to pin things to one lone individual Mm -hmm. so you know you you were saying earlier when we were downstairs that he was a bit of a recluse so Mm -hmm. I can't imagine he was going around sort of socializing and networking and like Mm. saying it was his idea but you can imagine how that would then become the story that the press wants to you know exactly I would say yeah I mean I'd agree with you that actually you know Subsequent, I guess, writers and critics on, um, of architecture did really kind of seize on him. But also, I think because, because he was situated in Colombo and he's a man, you know, people just automatically gave him a certain degree of credibility and just forgot about her. And she was located outside of the capital. She was in Kandy, which is the hill, hill town um, of, of Sri Lanka. And so... You know, that also might have fed into it, but I do think there was a gendered element mm-hmm. uh, dimension to all of that. Yeah. But also so many of the kind of architect, the sort of, su- the sort of successful, successful female architects of that era, frequently sort of husband and wife teams. I mean, there's, you know, uh, Richard and Elizabeth in, in, in this, <laughs> but there's, you know, sort of Alison and Peter Smithson, sort of Sherman and Helena Circus, all these sort of people that, you know, were very much, sort of, that you could become prominent. Obviously, the new Scott Brown thing is a spectacular example of that. Like, you know, awards tending to go to Robert Venturi even for buildings by Denise Scott Brown. Yeah. Um, and refusing to, to award awards to more than one person yeah, or, precisely. like, bring wives to anything. And it's like, what? But I'm not a wife, I'm an architect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, but we're dealing here with someone that, that was very much solo and very much kind of constructed a particular sort of identity around us. Mm. You mentioned there's a lot in, in there of sort of people looking at her yes. as yes. 
you know, with her with, with her saris and with her flowers yes, and so forth, and with yes. her particular look that she's yes. worked out. Yes, and it's her brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about how she sort of constructs that particular yes. brand? So, I mean, she she's just so ahead of her time on every level. So she constructed, as I've always said, it, it's this brand. She's in these fabulous saris with flower in her hair, and it's totally deliberate because she knows that people are already exoticizing her for the way she looks because she's a, an Asian woman um, from the Orient. And, you know, empire has not kind of... It, it wasn't long dead at this stage, right? So all of those, those ideas and, and, and beliefs are kind of still um, percolating. And she... Um, when she came to London um, in that post-war period, everything was really kind of, you know, grey and drab. And there she was like this, um, Le Corbusier called him his oiseau uh, de paradis, you know, because she was this, this really sort of elegant and extravagant figure um, against this very drab back, backdrop. Going and she... Yeah. <laughs> and she... Yeah. Anyway, and she... So she kind of just capitalized on that and exploited that. But at the same time, she was subverting the whole notion of the pliant, you know, Asian female because she was um, working in, in, a, in a man's world and she, um, she never kind of shied away from trying to, to, to pursue her ambition. So, um, so she was treading this really interesting line, I think, mm. um, and just used whatever she had um, in order to get ahead. And I don't mean that in a kind of horrible, uh, sort of cutthroat way. I mean it in a very clever way. She's taking ownership of something that she knew was already going to be exactly. used. Yeah. And, and I think her um, sort of biography scrapbook is, is called, you know, The Life of an Asian Woman Architect. Exactly. So she's, you know, she's like, well, if they're going to call me that, yeah. I might as well make it my own brand. Yeah, exactly. There's also a question about the, the, the particular architecture that, that, that she does and how that's sort of brought out sort of as the book goes on of her sort of engaging with Le Corbusier and in the letter sort of deferring to, you know, the great yes. genius and so forth, but being very much, I'm going to go and do this, mm. which is not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And I'm sort of interested in how that's sort of gradually brought out and how her, her architectural ideas take more and more of a central role as it goes on. Yeah, I mean, she starts out, um, as you say, she's really deferring to his genius. And she, I mean, you know, she's all slightly, I'm not saying she's totally putting it on, but she is sort of flattering him because he's a great man of architecture. But she has her own ideas and she doesn't shy away from articulating them. And really secretly, she feels very much on par with him. You know, she is an equal. She is there. She has her ideas and she believes in them. And she does not shy away from expressing them to him. But, you know, I think in the way that she, the way that she sort of talks about it is maybe, you know, couched in all of the, all of this language of flattery. Oh, you're such uh -huh. a genius and da da da. And there are, I mean, admittedly, there are times when she does feel like, you know, she lacks confidence, and that's because it starts out at the beginning of her career, and, you know, she, he's at the height of his career. She's just started, um, 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 you know, she's just graduated, so she's just starting out with, um, with clients who are actually friends of her family, so it's not quite the same, you know, it's not, it's not mm. the same level, right? So, so, she, um, so she does feel a bit unconfident, but as she progresses, as, as he, and he also respects her ideas, and he does say, you know, quite um, 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 nice things about what she's doing. So I think these two things kind of help her and bolster her. But as I say, she does have a will of iron, and, and she is really, I think she 100% believes in what she's doing, and she knows that she knows more about this subject than he does. I mean, for goodness sake, he calls him his wazoo de land, and she's not from India, you know, which is something that happens to Sri Lankans. So if there are a few in the audience, you'll know. Um, but anyway, yes. Actually, while you were talking, I found a little bit, which I, I'm, I know we're going to later read the letters, but there's a tiny mm. quote in one of the letters you write where that you can see her confidence is, like, coming on, and she's also... She's almost doing that thing that I'm sure many successful women in architectural partnerships do, where they make it sound like it was some, it was their idea. Yeah. Where he's, um, she says, 
For me, the answer is to start with a series of questionnaires. It seems to me that rather than force a person to live a certain way, we should listen to their needs and try to serve those needs, all the while introducing small innovations that coax the individual towards a more harmonious way of living. I'm sure you agree, which just sounds like a... I mean, I'm sure obviously that was partly, you know you investing that character but with that sense of like flattery but at the same time exactly. like showing quite an iron will beneath it exactly exactly <laughs> nicely found um, I'm so intrigued by the characterization of Le Corbusier himself who mm. it's extremely easy to demonize and he comes across as a prick but quite sympathetic <laughs> as well as being it's a, a sympathetic prick, prick. You, know, he does, he, 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 you know he does at the same time as saying all this pompous nonsense he does yes. listen to her yes and she does take his architecture seriously yes. and there is this kind of you know it's it's there's a, a huge power dynamic, but it is two yes. way. Yes. And I was sort of you know that you get these sort of moments where he's having these huge pompous flights of fancy, <laughs> uh, fancy, and then suddenly goes, I have to shit. <laughs> and just yeah. those little things, I I, I, I liked a lot. But um, I suppose you know the thing that that that, that, that he's doing throughout mm-hmm. is well not throughout, but for a lot of the book is he's designing Chandigarh. So he's sort of, you know, um, he's in northern India um, you know, designing an entire capital city and getting enormously upset if there are lily pads in the ponds. Um, and it seems such a huge contrast with how she's working on the houses at the same time. Exactly. I mean, again, it's like, this is also about the male ego and, and his ego, his enormous ego. And of course, again, because he is already this great man of architecture. So, of course, one must listen to me because I am Le Corbusier. And if I declare that, you know, the ponds should be like mirrors, then you must listen. And so that, I wanted to contrast that with her own kind of journey through um, her own architectural thinking. And she, um, you know, she had a very, she had a more participatory approach to her architecture. She also really wanted to consider the, uh, the context, you know, the, the landscape, all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, those, uh, you know, th- all of it is quite deliberate, and I wanted to set this kind of counterpoint there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's there's yeah. a really nice moment that comes in, actually, towards the beginning and the end, where she's designed, is it the Ar- Aria Pal- the Aria Parla Lodge. Yes. Lodge, and um, she goes into the kitchen to see how it's all working, and all the and she's designed it using the modular, you mm-hmm. know, and but all the obviously the modular is based on a Western, a French man, yes. very tall. A very tall um, man. and so all the um, quite small um, Sri Lankan ladies are standing on stools to yes. make all the food and to do all the washing up, yes. and, and they're like, "It's fine, we don't mind," yes. but they have to just constantly use stools to do anything in the kitchen, and she's like, "Oh God." Exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> exactly. It's like a real kind of moment of awakening. and Where yeah. maybe her own instincts are sometimes better than his in that case. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's such an egotistical thing, isn't it? The whole idea of the modular, you know, being based on this massive male and then, you know, building a house to just accommodate that particular individual or building a building to accommodate that individual. The white male as the standard Absolutely. and that being perfection. I mean, it's literally that's how he describes it. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's that moment where he goes um, uh, to the governor's house in, in Delhi <laughs> and he's like, it's beautiful. It's not the modular. <laughs> it's, it's actually not, but it's, it's beautiful. But, oh, well, never mind. You know, but it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a little bit of a, it's, it pierces his ego, but not for very long. <laughs> There's anyway. another question before we sort of go to the, the letters about the political change that's mm. happening, you know, and, and, and who are the actors within it. And in a way, there's a sort of point where she becomes a little bit less sympathetic, where you're sort of getting a lot of the time sort of the perspective from, um, you know, other people working in, working in the house. You know, you get yes. this sort of sense of um, where she is the elite. Yes. Um, and there's this sort of enormous political change happening in yes. both where Le Corbusier is working in India, but also in Sri Lanka. And yeah. you have the sense of, you know, on the one hand, Le Corbusier is kind of like, no one understands this apart from Nehru. <laughs> Everyone else is a credit. Yes. Um, and then you have her in this kind of moment of, you know, quite sort of revolutionary change as part of the English-speaking elite who, yeah. as time goes on, is sort of finding herself being dispossessed and doesn't seem to yes. like it. Yes, yes. I mean, so this is very much... Um, I really... I was very mindful that she was and that she did belong to an elite. Um, you know, she belonged to the intelligentsia even though she came from, to be fair, on her, her parents, 
her parents actually um, her dad was actually from a very modest background and experienced discrimination and all sorts of things so that fed into her politics which made her more sympathetic however you know she was what she was and she was definitely an elite and I wanted to kind of um, uh, contrast that and, and actually take people out of her uh, her perspective um, and and guess, lock them into the perspective, say, for instance, of Jaya, the housemaid, mm. so that you really got another view of who she was, um, because there are kind of layers of hierarchy, and I, and I absolutely wanted to, to explore that and, and give voice to, you know, the, to other people, you know, to, the, to, I guess, the vast majority of people um, who, who make up Sri Lanka. Um, so that was, you know, that was my kind of intention, but also to show just how these political elites, or rather this, this segment of society, because I, I don't, I have a certain view, um, but I can also, in the way that I present these, these kind of opposing forces, I can see, you know, why certain people thought the way they did about Sinhala only, mm. for instance, the vernacular, um, and championing the verna- vernacular as opposed to this colonial lang- language, mm. which is English. And it sort of splits her friends straight down the middle. You it have this really kind of, does. you have this sort of, um, you know, her sort of particular scene of sort of painters and artists and yes. so forth are completely kind of divided by this. Yes, exactly. I mean, they go from being this kind of, you know, oh, we're artists and we, we are above, you know, the politics to politics just really taking over and, um, and, you know, she, for a while, can remain aloof from, from the impact of all of these political changes because she's an elite, um, but eventually it, it, it enters her own circle of friends and it kind of tears them, tears them apart, really. So we should start with the, oh, yes. one of the earlier of the letters. Yes, so um, I'm going to read an... Uh, uh, a very short letter from the beginning of the book. Let's see if I've done my job and actually put a bookmark where it belongs. Yes. So this is right at the beginning. So the way the book is structured, so it has a very particular structure, is bookmarked by um, letters, the letters um, that uh, Minette sends to Corb and vice versa. So this is right at the beginning of the book. Um, Minette is still in London, and she's in that kind of honeymoon stage of being totally in love with, you know, Le Corbusier. Um, so it's, uh, she's reminiscing about the moment or the moments leading up to the time that she actually meets Corb. Um, and just to say, this is slightly fictional because she actually met him in Paris before Bridgewater, but you know creative writing and all that. So it's 4th of June, 1949. She's in London. I'm having tea from one of my finest china cups. This is not in and of itself worth writing about, but there is something about the color of this tea that makes me think of Bridgewater. The tea is not as bad as it was there, goodness no. In fact, it's rather good. I like my tea the Ceylon way. Plenty of milk and sugar with a shot of the best brewed B.O.P. leaves to be found, those grown as high as possible in the hills. I remember thinking this at Bridgewater. I was taking a break between talks, wondering whether I would ever get a chance to speak to you. I'll be honest, Corbu, I was desperate to speak with you. I wanted to impress you somehow, to make you notice me, the architecture student from the East. I wanted you to train those rounded specks on me, to look at me, to see me. You were preoccupied. A fissure had opened up between the young and old architects. They were attacking you, Gropius, and the Athens Charter with its absolute separation of functions within a city. Who could deny the unique and radical needs of post-war urbanism? Who could still believe that a site was a blank slate upon which a plan and its architecture could be imposed? I have always wondered at the arrogance of supposing a place has no existence without a building installed according to a man-made plan. Sigiria in Ceylon is exactly the opposite. It started with an enormous rock into which King Kashyap carved himself and his entourage. It is the rock that stands out 
The fortress, for indeed that is what it became, is barely visible, hinted at only in contours from afar. Its monumentality is drawn from its natural state. Closer inspection finds intricate claws and a staircase disappearing into the suggestion of a creature's gaping jaws, but all of this is hidden until you're close enough to touch it. The fortress was an island unto itself. Buddhist monks had once used it as an escape from this material world. Kashipa came to it to escape certain death at the hands of his brother for killing their father. The fortress was always there, inherent in the rock, much as Michelangelo would find his sculptures buried in marble. People were milling about, sipping cups of tea and nibbling on hard biscuits. I was stirring two spoonfuls of sugar into my tea, absorbed by the vortex of liquid swilling about in my cup. I heard nothing but the ting of the spoon on bone china. Even that sounded so much like home that the air cooled around me. If I looked out, I thought I would see green hills and a lake below and creepers of carnelian flowers, and Amma would be behind me talking to Jaya, our housemaid, about the intricacies of making love cake. Papa would be sitting on the veranda next to them, offering his opinion on the ratio of kadru to semolina. I turned around. I felt you behind me, Corbu. I turned around to smile at you, to say finally, no, I had much more to say than that. Sigiria. I was going to tell you about Sigiria, Kashipa, Michelangelo, about Marg, the magazine Otto, Marsha, and I founded in Bombay. I was going to ask you about Poissy and La Ville Radieuse, and all the while I would watch you watching me, my hair, my necklace, my sari. I was ready, holding all this on my tongue as I turned around. There was no one there. The crowds had been winnowed to a scattered few, most engrossed in writing notes or brushing crumbs from their lapels. I turned back to my tea and drank. It was weak and cold. I considered the ratio of Kadru to Semolina alongside my imagined parents and Jaya and somehow made light of my disappointment. So the passage I'm, I'm going to read is sort of Le Cabosier, but my part when, when it's actually in the book, you sort of have him thinking about what he's going to write and then writing about it. And I'm just going to read the actual, the, the sort of bit in italics that he actually does send. And it's kind of one of the things I like about it is he partly understands what he, what she's doing, yes, and partly doesn't. No. Um, so <clears throat> this work you are doing on the. Aria Parlour House, Waso. It fits perfectly the theme of the exhibitions. Here you are using the decorative arts in a functional manner and in the context removed from Europe. It would be useful to shift focus a little from the Western world, no? To look at modern architecture in the context of the Orient. Lessons of adaptation, integration of traditional methods so that new and old coexist, as you so eloquently put it. This old Corbu would like to see you, mon gentil Waso. You have taught me so much about le Inde. Your precise descriptions of those extraordinary sculptures at the Royal Academy. The Indians knew how to translate the human figure in all its robust tumescence. And these are your gods and goddesses, caught in fervent embraces, murderous bloodlettings, or ecstatic dances. What then is left for mere mortals? Because we too must feed our appetites. To the Victorians, these figures were depraved. To us, they are aspirational. They show us what lies at the extreme ends of the possible. And what's possible for us? We too are moving towards this extremity. Never are we more alive than when we caper on its tip. In your attic flat in London, we discovered what it means to blunder onto this edge. You with tender fingers and eyes of fire, your wings beating against my heart. This old man does not deserve to find such vitality late in life. So I'm going to skip a bit because I said I don't hog too much of it because he goes on, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> you are a force in Ceylon now, Minette. You're bringing modernism to that nation and with it, progress. It is a fledgling country, ready, like India, to embrace something new. How different it must feel to be in a place that has, as you once put it, become itself again. What is it like, Minette? The realms of possibility must be infinite. A newfound confidence, the courage that comes of success. Imagine, here is a chance to start again, build a new, reshape society and manners. Everywhere people are shedding the binds of war and demanding a better way of life. We can give this to them. We are pioneers, Minette. You even more so. Ceylon is ripe, ready to throw off the memory of colonisation. 
all those British buildings signifying British power. Why keep those relics when the country rejects what they stand for? Better to knock them down and begin afresh. Better to create a new building vocabulary, as you were doing, rooted in pre-colonial tradition, but family modern in its outlook. This is your mandate as an architect of the modern age. Do not forget what you are. Maintenant, écoutez-moi, Minette. Pay no attention to these areopalas and their petty complaints. You must believe in your vision so completely that they bend to it. They will. We are the visionaries. Tell them this. Why else have they asked you to build the house? Because they do not know how to create as you do, that's why. So you do not listen to them. Listen to me. Listen to Corbu. And to yourself. <laughs> um, and I've chosen a letter from the end, um, luckily with a few less French pronunciations than that, um, where she's in candy and Corbu is getting increasingly, I think, almost melancholic and concerned with age. And she's also now looking after her um, elderly father, and it's got a slightly more elegiac tone than some of their kind of cheekier earlier exchanges. Um, and also I should mention that when she talks about her toes, it's because I think, I don't know if this is true, but you've given him a bit of a foot fetish in this, where <laughs> the first time he kind of encounters Minette de Silva, he's like looking at her feet yes. and like her brown toes. Yes. <laughs> that in this letter that he's just written to her that she's responding to has become the kind of source of all his inspiration. <laughs> oh, and it's... 1964. Congratulations, Corbu. Chandigarh is magnificent, and as you know, we have included it in Marg. Extraordinary. How fortunate that it was completed before Nehru's death a few weeks later. But Chandigarh has changed so since I was there. It is another world altogether. I feel honored to have been a part of it, even if that contribution was ambiguous, unquantifiable. We are both there in its sinews. But you flatter me. To insist that Chandigarh sprouted from my toes. Unbelievable, Corbu. You are a romantic. No doubt you'll have changed your mind since you wrote that. It is only that you feel you owe me something that you project such importance upon me. I had no such natural wisdom, only the giddiness that youth brings and the blind faith of the starstruck. I'm not surprised that you feel somewhat bereft now that Chandigarh is complete. As you say, the feeling is inevitable, a postpartum depression that passes with acceptance. You must be relieved, too. No more traveling back and forth to India, no more disappointments and irritations to bluster over. In India, I mean. The others will continue to be there, I suppose. Above all, you must be very proud, Corbu. A member of the Legion of Honor. This is something I would have expected for you, but still, the reality of it must be so strange. I am not surprised you feel unworthy, though you deserve it more than most. I'm sure you will miss your team more than you let on, Elizabeth in particular. She was such a feisty foil to you. In the beginning, the two of you were quite the pair. I think her observations must have been invaluable. It is always important, vital I should say, to have someone you can trust to tell you the truth. As for Sitaram and Trevedi, I think their philosophizing was something you learned a great deal from. They were, from my recollection, thoroughly, trust thoroughly trustworthy and serious types. Types you could leave your life's work with without fear of it being exploited or cheapened in some way. No, if it was the wisdom of civilizations that you needed when tackling Chandigarh, then it was them and not I who shared it with you. I went to Jaipur for the last time in June, so I think I just missed you, Corbu. What a shame. It would have meant a lot to me to be there at the inauguration of your life's masterpiece, as you call it. My research continues. I've enclosed a comparative essay on the architecture of South and Southeast Asia. Let me know what you think. I'm just going to skip over the middle bit where she's talking about looking after her father to end with. No, I'm not going anywhere. I've been here long enough. I'm making my mark as an architect. It will only be a matter of time before they recognize what I have achieved here. And when they do, I should be within awarding distance, should I not? And yet this country has gone from bad to worse. Do I really want to live in a place where states of emergency are as common and predictable as the seasonal monsoons? I continue to ask myself the question. Perhaps a few months from now, the answer will be clearer. Many congratulations to you, Corbu, your friend, Minette. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So we have uh, about 10, 15 minutes for questions. So uh, there is a mic, I think, going round. So. Is it strange to hear other people reading a book? It's, been, <laughs> it's actually quite nice. I feel it's very relaxing to hear... Oh, <laughs> um, and it's interesting to hear how you interpret the text as well. Wow. So I'm uh, relieved. Oh, and if I got it wrong. No, not at all. Not at so all. thank you for that. That was uh, fascinating. I look forward to reading this book and giving it to my. So thank you for writing this book. It was fascinating, and I'm looking forward to reading it and handing it on to uh, my daughter and son-in-law. Greatly enjoy this. I want to ask you, um, what is your background, and why did you choose Minette, and what what is the uh, reason um, for the title of the book? Um, so by background, do you mean, am I an architect? No, I'm not an architect. Um, not a, I'm not a specialist. Um, I am a writer, but I also work in another field as well um, as a writer, but nonfiction. Um, why the title of the book? That's another question that a lot of people ask me. So plastic emotions, and I often say to people I'd like to hear what, why, what they think of the title and why they think I might have chosen it because I, I feel like that's a thing that you often reflect on as a reader. Um, but I'll give you my version anyway. Um, I took that phrase from Le Corbusier's Towards a New Architecture um, and he was describing architectural space as poetic space and also um, as something, you know, plastic. And by plastic, we don't mean like, you know, plastic bag. So it's like, it's something that can be molded, right? So the space is molding your emotion and in this, or, or, or the poetry of that space is molded by the actual structure. Um, I'm sure Owen will have better um, <laughs> explanation for that. Um, this is just my understanding. And so I felt like the structure of this novel um, is somehow there, um, and the, and the structure of their their correspondence kind of molds how they interact with each other. But there's also the wider kind of um, structure of the kind of political situation as well, which is molding the relationships and the dynamics um, between people um, in, in the novel. And so I felt like that was, even though it was the Corbusier's words, I felt it was the right phrase for the book. But I would... That's just my version, and I think other people, when they read the book, will have their own, their own interpretation. I, I think this is such an important project that you've been researching, especially from your um, idea of the, the kind of narrative that you're following. But the, the architect you, that you're not naming, Jeffrey Bauer, I think <laughs> is really a dis, doing a disservice, because he was born on the 23rd of July today, 100 years ago. So I think we should all actually acknowledge the fact he's only one of other two architects from Sri Lanka that we should actually see. They both studied at the Architecture Association. He was influenced by Maxwell Fry, by Jane, Jane Drew. Um, I think when we talk about these kind of issues in a fictional sense, of course, Corbusier was so influential, but both of them were interested in what Kenneth Frampton would talk about, a critical regionalism. <laughs> and I think it's really important to think about local materials, the way that they both were interested in craft. And so for us, I think it's important to name him because it's so few people that we know from that part of the world. So I just wanted to bring that into the equation. Hi. Uh, can I ask if um, her architecture still survives in Sri Lanka and elsewhere? And are there any books yes. about her architecture which show uh, photographs of it? 
So um, the main book about her architecture is actually her autobiography, which is The Life and Work of an Asian Woman Architect, and it's out of print, um, which is a shame. There are a number of um, academics who are working to kind of recover her as, a, as an architect. Um, and I'm hoping that like their work will come out soon. Um, there is a, um, an academic called Anuradha, Anuradha Iyer, um, who is doing some work on the archive, for instance. Whether her buildings actually survive, yes, they, there are some, but not that many. And they're mostly in a pitiful state, the, those that do actually still survive. Um, there are some in Colombo. Um, the Arya Pala house, which is actually the Karanaratna house, that was her first build, and that was in Kandy. That's actually the only build that I kind of changed the name of um, because I wasn't necessarily that kind about the actual client, so I felt a little bit uncomfortable. But, um, Anyway, so the Karnaratna house is still standing. Um, so that's her first build in, in Kandy. And then her first build in Colombo is also still there, the Imperius House 1. Um, but they both really need kind of restoration. Um, and then there are other, there are other builds, um, the Kandy Art Center, but it, it doesn't look really much like it was originally designed as so. Yeah, I mean, there, unfortunately, there isn't, um, unlike with Jeffrey Bauer, who actually set up a trust and his build, buildings are kind of being kept um, uh, alive by this trust and being uh, looked after, she, she didn't have a trust of any sort and, and there isn't really any move to kind of restore or, or, you know, maintain or protect her buildings. So quite a few of them have actually been destroyed. Yeah. And from the little that I, I know, because they're often very much open to the elements as like yes. a central feature of the design yes. in terms of how quickly they are overtaken by the overgrowth. The elements, yes, You know, exactly. it's probably quicker than most. Yeah, exactly. I uh, look forward to reading the book because I've actually met Minette. Oh, fantastic. Yes. She was quite old at the time. And I've been to a number of her houses as well. Fabulous. In the past, yes. So look forward to that. But why, what made you choose Minette to write about? Well, I thought she was in a kind of astonishing figure. And not many people knew about her. I certainly didn't know anything about her. I just heard about her from someone who worked with her. And, um, and I heard all these kind of fantastic stories about, about the people she knew. That's kind of how I first came to be impressed, which is a bit sad. But at the same time, it was a bit extraordinary to think that she had been, you know, socializing with some of the greats of, you know, 20th century. Um, and here, and she's this woman from Sri Lanka, and I'd never heard of her. So um, that just led me to kind of do a bit more research on her and find out more about her. And then that then led to my thinking, actually, I think more people would want to know about her. Um, and so I wrote the book. It took me a very long time. Um, <laughs> But yeah. And it's great. That's Thank nice. you. <laughs> Thank you. The letters in the book are not. They're fictional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, I had to fictionalize what was actually there. Um, but it's, it's actually quite interesting because the, the letters that I saw uh, did not actually cover, you know, the politics in the country. And I, I wanted to talk about the politics and so that was injected into the letters and I felt like that's a key thing that she, sh she would have been thinking about and just recently a friend of mine the friend who was actually working with, him, with her um, he sent me a letter that she'd written to him and it was about politics and it was so close to what I'd actually written that I was really astonished um, and I thought oh, I must have channeled, channeled something when I was, when I was writing this um, so there is a bit of fact in them here and there, but most of it is fiction. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he really rose um, from his humble origins. Isn't yeah. her um, candy, which is a candy art center, where yes. she is there's like a plaque, yes. but it's like daughter of so and so, yes. sister of so and so, exactly. and she is an architect. Exactly. At the end. Exactly. Really disappointing that. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for writing this story. I'm really looking forward to read the book. Oh, I had a question. Uh, so you've been describing her approach about, in contrast to Le Corbusier, about she understanding the, the space mm -hmm. that has been mm -hmm. built, the ideas that don't come from me, they come from mm -hmm. kind of an ecology or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm describing it quite bad, but, you know, it's not a tabula rasa. There's something right. there already, etc. Yes. Uh, but then when you're talking, um, when you're reading the letters, it's usually me, my design, my idea, my approach. And I'm wondering to what extent mm. in the real or in the fiction uh, do you describe in the book if she was approaching you know, her designs, acknowledging um, the people that work in her studio probably, the people that work on site, the yes. people that... Well, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, actually, she had this kind of... So, the craftspeople and the artist, these were... She felt like the perfect kind of trinity when you're designing and building um, was to have your architect, your fine artist, and your um, craftsperson. And so, she, she um, worked with um, craftspeople to, you know, build the kind of decorative aspects of her buildings. So um, she had a kind of relationship with them, and uh, they really did, you know, they respected her. And she was really, she wanted to kind of revive the kind of arts and crafts because she felt like this was a dying tradition in Sri Lanka. Um, and it was kind of continuing, in some ways, the work that her mom had or already been doing um, with, with um, the craftspeople. Um, and they were kind of, as I said, a kind of dying tradition. And also they weren't really, you know, earning much because they weren't really given much kind of work. And I guess through her work and through her attempts to revive that, I feel like that must have also played into subsequent, you know, uses of the arts and crafts um, in, in building in Sri Lanka. Because now it's, it really is like intrinsic to... to um, uh, the, the really nice architecture that you find in, in Sri Lanka today. So, yeah, she really did, you know, she really respected these, these workers and, um, and, and wanted to kind of um, ensure that their livelihoods were also kind of protected. So. That looked like it was the last one. I think so, thank you. Um, we can stick around a bit and buy the book, obviously, and before we do that, please thank Shremi Pinto. Owen Heatherly and Livia Sudges. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.